Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers is proud to sponsor the Ortho Show podcast. Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers is killing it right now. We have six centers open with two more opening in the next eight weeks with 10 more sites in the queue across the country. We're exclusively powered by the MLS M8 laser technology. Laser treatment is an awesome alternative to traditional cortisone shots and surgery for all of your acute and chronic orthopedic pain needs for your patients. To find out how you can supercharge your orthopedic practice and become a part of the OrthoLaser community, go to the OrthoLaser website at www.ortholaserwithaz.com. That's www.ortholaserwithaz.com. From Medical Media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, the original opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon, healer of knees and shoulders left and right here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast. I am really excited. We have one of the iconic leaders of orthopedic surgery uh, in the United States with us today. He's a, he's a colleague. He's a friend. Uh, I respect him so dearly, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead in with a couple of things uh, that I, I'd like to say about him. But, but first, he is the chairman of orthopedics at Bronx Care Health System. Uh, but I like to describe him as the godfather of orthopedics. He trained with the icons. He knows everyone and everyone knows him. And a little bit of fact that maybe not everybody realizes, I'm actually going to give him the title of the creator of orthopedics on the internet. Dr. Ira Kirschenbaum, it is a pleasure to have you on, brother. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's a, quite a title to, to live up to, I guess, huh? No, it's but it's so true. I mean, the you know, it's been such a, a lot of fun. We're going to talk about the journal as we get towards the end of the conversation, and we'll make sure everybody hears about that. But we've been doing a lot of great work together. And one of the things that I recognized, Ira, about you, and it just didn't make any sense to me. It was just like, man, this dude is so savvy on the internet and the computer and all of these things that he's doing. And I'm like, I'm like, he's an old dude. He's supposed to not be able to learn, know even how to turn the computer on, you know? And I'm like, where's this coming from? But if you dive deep into your history, it's a real phenomenal history about, about computers and how you start, isn't it? Yeah, no, it really, it is, it's been a long, super exciting journey in computers um, from uh, stories of me in the back of Larry Ellison's house, his $79 million mansion, talking for four hours about life in computers uh, many years ago to um, my very first website called Bone Home. I love it. Yeah, I've been reading up on that. That's yeah. a fantastic name, by the way. Yeah, that was a great name. And to what probably a lot of people don't know was the accidental way that I got into computers, a very accidental way. Yeah, and, and I want you to tell that story. But it's like, unlike Al Gore Jr., I mean, like you literally did have a role in developing the internet and what we call today as websites. I mean, we all take it for granted. Just click on the computer, you go to a website. Oh, that's a pretty one. But you were actually like making websites. And not only that, but you, you figured out how to do it and you wrote your own code, right? Yeah, my first website was Bone Home. And um, I uh, got some space on a server. And um, I got a book 
on uh, a, co- a couple of books on uh, HTML, and I had to learn how to uh, put words on the page and images on the page and animated GIFs on the page. And so Bone Home uh, became that first website, uh, which we started around 93 to 94. Uh, you can actually still see screen captures of it on a website called um, the Way Way Back Machine, the internetarchive.org. You can see pictures of Bone Home, which looks suspiciously like a lot of websites today. I mean, we, just to give you an idea, at the time, this is 1993, 94, we had 1,000 royalty free images for people to download that were orthopedic images. We had PowerPoint presentations. They weren't PowerPoint, they were um, freelance graphics. Freelance uh, graphics um, um, presentations um, for residents to give if they were stuck for a quick talk for Grand Rounds. They could download it for free and, and claim it was theirs. Yeah, I, I was in residency at the time. And, you know, that was what we were doing. I mean, like, you know, I don't even think the internet really started as the World Wide Web until like 1990, you know. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, right? 1990. We were, we were on it starting in, um, in the late 80s in a non-graphical user interface uh, in a research lab I was in. Yeah. yeah, I have no idea what that means, but you know, I'm just an orthopedic <laughs> surgeon. But but no, I mean, I want to be clear for the listeners. I mean, like literally, you 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 went to the bookstore, you yes. got a book on HTML, which is this thing on how you write you know language and code for websites. You taught yourself how to do this, and then you sort of built this website all along while you're in the midst of you know being a busy orthopedic surgeon and oh, taking yeah. care of patients. Yeah, it was during my. Um... Let me see. It was uh, it was during my early years of practice, my first two or three years of practice, which, as you know, it's crazy. Um, and um, I was uh, working well into the night. I, I still remember the the publisher of that book was Rabbit. It was called the Rabbit Series in Computers or something like that. And and every time I had to do something, it was like trial and error, and uh, there weren't a lot of resources. But I was able to pull it off. At one point in time, Bone Home got one million page views a month in 1994. I mean, that, that's you know, it's just unbelievable to me. And then, and then, but you took it further from there too, right? You got involved with with Medscape and yeah. and then, you know, WebMD. I mean, you, you rode this thing. I mean, and you, you continue to, right? I mean. Yep. And so, so what happened was I got a phone call from some guys who were doing a startup company. That startup was Medscape. And they called me in and they, they wanted to license my um, content on Bone Home because they did not have Medscape orthopedics at the time. So I said, um, okay, um, what are you offering? And uh, I came, went with my lawyer, who's really more of an agent. And they said, we'll give you $25,000 for your content. And I was ready to say, okay. I, I was just. Yeah, know, what I, year was this? What year? This is 19. I was 40. So it was, uh, I'd say 1993, 94. All right. So that's okay. a bit of change, a piece yeah. of change. And you know, you've been working hard for it. And, my, and just when I was ready to say, sounds good, my lawyer interrupted and said, no, 
you you don't want his content. You want him. And if you want him, it's going to cost you stock options. And I, I was very unaware of the concept of. <laughs> Thank God for the lawyer. So true story, true numbers, because it's always good to get true numbers. I was able to get 250,000 share stock options at 86 cents a share. All right. And eventually we took a public in 1997. And uh, um, sounds like you did pretty well. Did well enough to, uh, not by today's standards of cashing it all in, but it worked out very, very well for me uh, for considering the entire cost of bone home in actual cat costs, not, not time. Was thirty five hundred dollars. Well, that's that's just a that's it's just a crazy story. It is a crazy story, and you know, and everybody just sort of knows you and respects you for all the, the amazing stuff you do in orthopedics and 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 bundled payments, which we will talk about again there too, because I think it sort of ties in. But and yet you've had this just amazing, you know, computer career on this, well, not even on the side, it's a parallel career as you were as you're moving on. You've continued to to leverage that as you as you. Uh, uh, continue to to be an orthopedic surgeon as well. So but you know it's interesting because I wanna it's a it's a great segue as to how you get these stock options. You put in your energy and your effort and you you, you walk away with something that's well deserved. But yet, you know, one of the things that I, I also really admire about you is that you know you trained with some of the you know the greatest total joint specialists in America at the time, right? Dick Rothman, yeah. Chip Ronawat, and there's a host of others that, that you comment on as well. And literally, you know, you were trained by the top docs and you had credentials that could have taken you anywhere you wanted to. Private practice, New York City, you know, all the things that go on. And instead, your path, you, you sort of harken back to your medical school and residency days and you decide to go into the South Bronx, which is arguably, you know, one of the most deserved uh, populations for care in the U.S. And, and you set up shop there and you build an awesome orthopedic department. So, Tell us about that because I really, I really commend you on that. It's just you know, nobody, nobody goes and does that when they have that opportunity to go uh, elsewhere if they can. Yeah, I mean, I was in. Uh, I've been here thirteen years, uh, and before I came, I was uh, in a private practice, joint replacement practice. I was associated with uh, Dr. Ronawat, um, not as a partner, but as a I was in the office, did office hours where he did office hours. My name was on the door. And so I was at, I had an office in Westchester County, which was very nice. And on um, Lexington Avenue and 77th Street, Manhattan, which for those of you who are not New Yorkers, uh, I'm sorry that you're not a New Yorker, but. I, <laughs> are but there any New Yorkers left? I thought they all left the city. Yeah, they all left for the Hamptons. Yeah. So, um, so I, um, I, I was there, and a uh, true story, it was 2007. My daughter was graduating from high school, and there was a party in the back of her house. Uh, no, in the back of, not her house, uh, in the back of a neighbor's house for graduation. And uh, we, we, we were there, and I was talking to a guy who did his uh, ER residency the same time I did my orthopedic residency at Montefiore. And... He said, how do we get a guy like you? And he was the head of the ER at Bronx, what was called Bronx Lebanon at the time, which is where I am now, uh, Bronx Care Health System, which is the largest not-for-profit, non-governmental 
hospital in the poorest congressional district in the United States. Okay, that is what it is. He said, how do we get a guy like you to come here? And I said, why get a guy like me? Why don't you just get me? And he said, are you serious? I said, I must, because that stuff just came out of my mouth. (laughs) And to this day, I do not know why I actually said that, except I do remember the last year in private practice feeling, do I really, what was going to be any sense of my legacy? I was doing well over 400 joints a year, which at that time period was very solid, very good. And I was in a uh, solo and then I had a, a sports medicine partner for a short period of time, but mainly solo for a lot of years. And so um, they hooked me up with the CEO and the COO and they said, what would it take you to get me down there? And I came up with a plan that uh, actually guaranteed them that whatever they invested in me, I would build. Um, there was a small temporary, I call it, department at the time, uh, some people who were not fully vested. Uh, all of them left quite quickly. So I built it from scratch. We started with uh, me and one hand surgeon was my very first hire, Dr. Sepeda Bagian and uh, one foot surgeon, Dr. Neil Blitz. Um, and we started that. We The first year was 2,500 office visits and 230 operations. That's what we took over. And we generated about one point, at they, before I got there, generated about 1.5 million for the hospital. We now um, have 14 orthopedic surgeons. We see over 50,000 clinic visits a year. We do over 2,300 major operations, and we generate, uh, probably not a lot to say, so I won't say it, but quite a bit from that for the hospital, for the community that gets, since we're not-for-profit, gets funneled completely back in to programming for for this community. And we call ourselves surgeons to the community. I'm in my 13th year. I just hired, uh, we just bought a makeup. We're the only safety net hospital I know of in the country that has a Mako robot. Yeah. You know, we hear this a lot on the ortho show and and the idea of legacy and and how you can pay it forward and be able to, you know, take care of as many people as you can. And, And I think that, uh, it's so commendable to hear that. I mean, you know, you're, you're Lexington Avenue, some Michigas guy comes up to you and says, we need you to go to the Bronx and start a clinic. Yeah. And you say yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. Do, hey, you know what I was thinking about it. Do you, do you know Spike Foreman? Do you remember Spike Foreman? Yes, I do remember Spencer. Spike Spencer Foreman. Foreman. So Spencer Foreman uh, was the father of one of my best friends from high school. And he took, uh, he had a Jewish hospital down in Baltimore, Sinai Hospital. Yeah, Sinai, yeah. That's exactly right. And Michael Mott was down there for a while too. And, and, uh, and he came up to Albert Einstein and just really made a huge difference. And just, yeah, a he was a great guy. He was the CEO when I was a resident there. Okay. Got it. Uh, of course, I didn't know him personally because um, he was the CEO and I was a low, a resident at the time when we worked 700 hours a week. <laughs> um, 
So but true. They never ate. You know, you know, it's the number keeps on going up each year. How many hours? <laughs> yeah, I know. But you know, look, they're still working hard, so we can't. It's hard. As I as I say, you know, I sometimes say Rome wasn't built in a day, but I'm sure they were working every day to build. Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a great point so yeah i mean so just an amazing and, and what's great is that you guys put it back into the community and, and yeah. you know and you build it and and uh these people again are so they they need care and you guys have built it for them it's really a remarkable story and so we love we love that type of stuff so one of the other things i wanted to switch over to is another thing that you're involved in and uh, i was listening to your podcast with kevin brown the you know the device nation we love that podcast too and and one of the things that you commented on for bone home is that you in 1994 literally had a, the possibility of developing a bundle you could look on that website and show the costs associated with an episode of care for a total knee for example which is like decades ahead of anybody what they were doing at the time and that's really pretty cool yeah, it's very it's very interesting. Again, if people go on the Internet Archive um, dot org or way way back machine, you could actually get a picture and play with the Internet in nineteen ninety four to ninety eight. You could actually see my case. It was called the case rate. You could actually see a working and download a working Excel document that had allowed you to calculate your cost to do a joint replacement or what you wanted to charge. And it came up with a bundled rate based on. Do you remember remember what it would have been for a total knee back then by any chance? We were working with a base of about $18,000. Eight zero. $18,000. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. We weren't messing around. Oh, that's impressive. I mean, if you think right now, that's probably about twenty-two or twenty-three thousand uh, for for a bundle right now for inpatient, anyway, not in the ASC. Well, remember back then, surgeons' fees were higher, right? And hospitals were used to getting more money, you know. Right. And um, so, and, you know, one of the insurance companies back then, Oxford, challenged people to come up with case rates, and so. I took it a step further and programmed uh, online in HTML and converted an Excel spreadsheet into HTML. And it was, uh, it's a workable uh, case rate generator. <laughs> it's, yeah. so, it's just so impressive. I mean, some of the things that we just sort of take for, take for granted, like, you know, what, five years ago, six years ago, I wasn't talking bundles, but now you were talking about it in 1994. Very impressive. And you, but what's also, you know, you're sort of really a pioneer in the idea of, of high quality, cost-effective medical care. That's something, you know, you were talking about reduction in length of stay, again, sort of, you know, decades before everybody else was talking about it. And one of, I think, you know, one of your great passions, which I'd love for you to talk about, is your involvement with SwiftPath, with Craig McAllister, Vin Dasa. Tell us a little bit about SwiftPath. Sure, I will. Um, well, I'll back up slightly and say that, you know, I started getting involved in episodes of care and care management. I was working as I was a chief of uh, author of joint replacement and resource management for Kaiser Permanente in the Northeast in the early 90s. And we won the Vose Award for quality for decreasing length of stay from 12 days, believe it or not, at the time to four days in 1994 using episode of care management. Let's fast forward. Craig McAllister, who did his residency with me and also replaced both of my knees. And I'm doing quite well with both of them. Okay. Um, 
um, and he should not have sent me to collection. What? That's it. no, just kidding. Because there's there's no good orthopedic surgeons in New York, so you right. had to fly I out to fly out. out. Yeah, right. Right. I flew out to Seattle because you can no longer find a good orthopedic <laughs> surgeon in New York City. <laughs> They're all gone. And I didn't want to go up to upstate New York where Dr. Andrew Wickline is. Oh, we had to get the Wickline in there. That's fantastic. The um, number one joint replacement specialist in all of New York State. In all of New York. Yeah. Just ask him. <laughs> yeah. It was just, it was a shorter flight to Seattle than the drive up to Geneseo, New York. <laughs> um, so Craig McAllister, who is a, just a remarkable orthopedic surgeon and thinker in this area, um, and I've been best friends for 30, 35 years. And we, he, he came up with the idea that we should codify some of this idea of the management of early recovery, um, but more importantly, the six weeks before to 90 days or longer uh, episode of care. So he, he, Start, he wrote an article that was accepted at AUKUS on this out, well, he was doing outpatient joint replacement at a time when nobody was doing it. Uh, no one, no one we knew. I mean, there were a number of people, I mean, you know, uh, in Ohio, you know, they were doing, but not a lot of people were doing it. And then what happened was we wrote all the protocols for Swift Path, which is an episode of care management company that, um, Gives the uh, surgeons a surgeon, a custom surgeon author guide, online patient uh, engagement tools. Uh, and this was about you know, six years ago we started it. So, you know, there's a lot of patient engagement tools now, but I think we were an early entry into the field. Um, the advantage that Craig had by me joining is I actually programmed the original database and app myself. Shocking. Uh, Shocking. Um, which was uh, which was rough because <laughs> because I actually had a client in Craig who you know when I, when I was my own client it looked good you know? <laughs> yeah. now he wanted me to change gray to blue or green it was it was annoying so um, we did Swift Path and uh, we got a fair number of customers which was quite good. Um, the uh, pathway was vetted. Um, Bernie Stolberg was a Swift Path user. Um, Andrew Wickline does over a thousand joints a year. Swift Path user. Uh, Vin Dasa, quite a quite a number of, of people uh, were Swift Path users. Um, the app was working very well, and then um, we were approached by um, Optum, which is a uh, the uh, practice management arm of United Health Group. A very large group, and they invested uh, very heavily in, in us. I, I believe heavily uh, in for us for a stake in the company. Uh, we since bought them back out. Uh, interestingly enough, but that was a real burst in the arm for us to take Swift Path to the next level. Um, it's very interesting. So that has been. Uh, a great story. We, we ran roundtables, which I think no other episode of management company did. We have interviewed through these roundtables close to 100, 120 orthopedic surgeons to using the Delphi method to try to um, come up with best case, best practices. 
uh, with with these roundtables. So, so Ira, you know, we've got a lot of listeners out here that are not necessarily orthopedic surgeons. So, I think that they would love to hear from you why they should go to Andrew Wickline or Vin Dasa or Craig McAllister. Because how is the Swift Path going to make my mother's total? And she's listening, so you got to listen now. Right. How is my mother's total knee going to be better because she goes to a Swift Path doctor? Well, Andy Wickline just published an article in our, our new journal. 23-hour length of 23-hour hip and knee replacement with 10 opioid pills or less, no formal physical therapy, all physical therapy through the Swift Path method. And he has the lowest ER return rate and lowest readmission rate in New York State. Super impressive. So bottom line is opioid sparing approach. Yep. Where we can, you're, you're basically improving the 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 outcome for the patient by uh, reducing you know cost to the system, but also complications and all those other things that are associated with it. And physical therapy can be at home, where you're in the comforts of your house, uh, being monitored still. I'm assuming yeah. uh, and making sure that uh, they continue to progress well. So it's a it's a positive experience for the patient. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I actually. Uh, for people who really want to know more about it, I actually programmed a website of my own knee replacement, which was done through the Swift Path method. It's uh, myneeyourknee.com. And I took a video of my recovery every day in the Swift Path method for two, two or three weeks. So myneeyourknee.com. That yeah. is awesome. I've actually looked at it. It's a great way to chronicle the experience of what a total knee replacement is going to be like, especially as a doctor on the other side uh, as the patient. So, you know, again, great, great idea. Give us the website one more time, Ira, for the people. Yeah, it's myneeyourknee.com. Awesome. So let's segue. Let's let's pivot now into, into your latest endeavor into the orthopedic internet space, which I am proud to be a part of as well as, as on the editorial board. Uh, and that is that you are the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Orthopedic Experience and Innovation. And uh, it's, it's just amazing. I mean, when did you, when did you first go, go green on this? How long has it been? It's been six full months. And it's just, it's unbelievable how the thing has taken off, right? Yeah, we have now, we looked at these analytics. We have over 30 thousand page and article views in six months that's just unbelievable and you know and this is like when i talked about the godfather it's like if you look at the editorial board you know it's just they're 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 just an amazing group of people that that you brought together from not not just with the piece but industry too right i Absolutely. mean you know, people that are part as well who are taking part of this so it's a, it's a very unique concept and you know, I've been writing all these, you know, I got my laser thing going on for COVID. And so I've been diving deep into the research world. And I and I understand the the, the problem with the lack of open access for a lot of journals that are out there at this point. So for, for our listeners that not everybody understands the difference, what what's unique about uh, about Joey and open access for, for people that want to write an article? Sure. Most journals, as uh, some people want to know, you have a subscription to the journal. And if you subscribe to the journal, you can see the article online or you get it in print. A lot of journals have gone to what's called uh, a feature called open access, which means even without a subscription, the articles that are open access, not all the articles, only the articles that the editorial board determined 
go into open access. Anyone could view without a subscription. The problem is journals often always charge the author an article processing fee. And that ranges in orthopedics from one of the uh, one of the journals in orthopedics at forty seven hundred dollars per article. So you got to you got to write them a check for forty seven hundred bucks for yeah. your your piece of uh, journal uh, um, literature to be uh, to be published to be published in open access. The um, least expensive is about twelve hundred per article, um, and that. Uh, that is the article processing fee. So what we started doing, what I did in in, in the Journal of uh, Orthopedic Experience and Innovation, what we call Joey, um, we have no submission fees for the surgeons, so they don't have to pay anything. And there's no open access article processing fees. It's just free. There's no subscription, so anyone could read it. All right. And you're getting great material for that reason. Yeah. It's a paradigm shift. People, you can put your blog in, you can write a post. It can be one of the other things that it's one of my pet peeves is we've really, the pendulum has swung to this belief right now that evidence-based medicine is the only way in which you can practice. And experience is a four-letter word. And you just can't do things because somebody told you it was okay to do it. You have to have a level one randomized controlled trial to be able to do that in clinical practice. And we've sort of um, not rejected, but we want to add to the literature of various experiences in different communities in the country. So, for example, when it gets produced at, for example, the Mayo Clinic of what the infection rate is or what a readmission rate is or what a result is, that is not America. That is a subset cross-section of people who can get on a plane and afford to see somebody. Right off the bat, the patient is different. We at Joey are interested in what, a, what is the same study at LSU, which is a, has a safety net hospital. What is that study at a community hospital in Reading, Pennsylvania, that does 3,000 joints a year? You know, active high-quality orthopedic surgery being done in different types of community will build a literature to allow us to know the truth about the results and give people guidance. Wow, this is what it really is. Uh, so that's an example of one of the reasons we did this. The other one was there is a tremendous amount of knowledge that can be gotten through someone writing an article, this is my experience with this machine or with this technique. This is my experience with that. And given the right author, um, that could be a home run article and give people tremendous guidance, people comment on it. Uh, and the last thing is we, we actually accept articles from industry. They get peer-reviewed completely. But an industry, a industry member could uh, have one of their consultants write on a great new innovation. Now, how many times do we see a new innovation in sports medicine and joint replacement? Uh, company X develops SuperTech, and you don't see an article for six years on that. All right, but wouldn't it be great if the consultant who developed SuperTech wrote why I developed it, how I developed it, what it's doing, 
here's the lab stuff, here's what we're doing, and here's my early experience with it. There's, there's a lot of value in that information. I completely agree. I mean, you know, innovation by definition is at the forefront, and it's very difficult to, to take that innovation and then have a randomized controlled trial based on that. However, you know, the, the experience of that surgeon, that is one of the greatest ways in which I, I've learned. I mean, unfortunately, we're not going to society meetings anytime soon. Yeah. But, you know, all of the times that I get together with my peers, you know, I, I always leave with more than what I came. And it's not because they hand me a paper they just published in JASES. It's more like, you know, dude, did you see how so-and-so did that on that reverse total shoulder or that lat transfer or, you know, that distal, you know, so you get this information that can only be downloaded from, you know, from one doctor's experience to another. And that is so valuable, but yet it's not, there's never been a place for it to be published, to be able to be viewed. We're not all in academic centers. Most of us are in private practice and community hospitals. And so therefore, you know, having the ability to, to have access to this, I think is really terrific. And then sometimes I call it peer reviewed rubbing elbows. Yeah. You know, because everything is peer reviewed and we um, were very active board. As I told you, we now have over 85 members of the, on the board and um, the board members, um, we have a certain minimum of reviews of, of every article. Um, and it has been a remarkable and surprising, I have to tell you, surprising experience. I, I, uh, I am blown away by the response of some of the articles. I mean, we had one article from England uh, on patient-specific instrumentation. Okay, beautifully written. Uh, the may the lead author was Lila Beyond, and um, it got over twenty two hundred reads in a three week period. Yeah, that's impressive. Twenty two hundred reads. It was a great article. I commented yeah. it on myself. I mean, because you know, look, the patient outcomes it hasn't been shown, but that there's a change. But how about efficiency in the operating room? Is there cost savings there? Things like that are not necessarily factored in. But you know, that's why that's why I love being a part of it. I will say this quite clearly: the Journal of Orthopedic Experience and Innovation, Joey is fro approved and everyone should be listening uh everyone should be watching and being a part of it uh so i wrote you know look i can't thank you enough this this is the stuff that we love on the ortho show people that come and bring their really fascinating innovative stories uh for our listeners and and you really you know you just have so much that you've offered to all of us we can't thank you enough well thank you and what you're doing and what you've been doing with the opioid sparing i've been following that and it's been amazing. And thank you for having me on the show. Oh, it is my pleasure. The godfather of orthopedics, the creator of orthopedics on the internet, Dr. Ira Kirschenbaum. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, host of The Ortho Show. Hashtag follow the fro. Till next time.